Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to Sensensa.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. Dr. Marissa Gowen is a relationship scientist and coach and teaches psychology at the college level. Her relationship research focuses primarily on people's perception of the first date success and consensual non-monogamy. She's author of From First Kiss to Forever, A Scientific Approach to Love, a book that relates relationship science to everyday experiences and real relationship issues confronting by couples. In addition, she's a co-founder of the Self-Awareness and Bonding Lab, a lab that examines love from a scientific perspective. This podcast is made by Sensor.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to Sensor.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. Let's head over and speak to Marissa. So welcome to the show today, Marissa. I'm really excited about having you on here today because part of what I want to do, as discussed before, is I really want to combine the scientific findings with how we relate to relationships. And I think that's something that's often missing and something that's absolutely crucial for us to understand what actually works and what doesn't. And you've obviously written a book that's been released recently, and I think that is probably a good place for us to start. So I would just love if you could share a bit about the book and and some of the findings in that book, which, by the way, is called From First Kiss to Forever, A Scientific Approach to Love. So people can obviously go check that out. But would you be able to tell us a bit about what that book is actually about and and what, what the key findings are? Sure. And thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I completely agree with you. And it's so important to really connect the academic research with people's everyday experiences. And that's exactly the focus of my book. So uh, From First Kiss to Forever, A Scientific Approach to Love covers relationships all the way from their formation to their potential demise. I have chapters on every aspect of relationships, such as uh, factors of attraction, first dates, what what makes a successful first date, cheating or infidelity, trying to forget an ex, as well as communication with your partners. And in the book, I discuss important studies in the field, and I also try to relate them to people's lives. So what I do is I end each chapter with either take-home exercises, questions, or ideas for readers to ponder so they can make that connection between research and the real world. I also try to infuse a lot of pop culture just to make the concepts relatable and also approachable and fun. And just kind of in in general, what the book is looking at is it examines this incredible drive or love by collecting and interpreting data. And we might not be able to unpack the mystery of love and relationships entirely, but I'm trying to use objective and sound methodology to understand it a little bit better. And I guess the main take home is that this science, relationship science, does apply to our lives in incredibly useful ways. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. And you know, it's just I had a thought while you were talking about this and, and how you relate the science with people's everyday life. And that's, 
you know, I think that, and this is just my perspective on this, so this is not scientifically validated, but my perspective is that navigating love is really also about this whole integration between left and right brain to be able to understand how we can navigate in relationship both through self-awareness and our cognition and our understanding, logical understanding, but also the emotional spectrum and the holistic experience that we have, somatically emotional and, you know, for us to be able to navigate love, I think we need a good, solid integration of these two brain parts. Oh, I completely agree with you. And one thing that I just want to pick up on that you mentioned that I think is so important and worth reiterating is that self-awareness piece. And um, I'm a huge proponent of that. And many people are under the impression that to have better and more fulfilling relationships, it's about understanding other people. And Sure, understanding the human bond and connection and communication is really important, but that self-awareness piece or that understanding of your own needs, your wants, your desires, what makes you tick, that's a huge component as well. And, you know, this is, you know, personally, I feel that only once you understand yourself, are you really able to have a fully functional relationship. Yeah, you know, I'm so happy you said that because I can just relate that to literally some advice I gave to a woman that called me up recently. And of course, I can't mention any names, but essentially it was about that she felt she constantly get attracted to very avoidant men, which makes her feel emotionally very empty in her relationships. And eventually she will end up leaving the men. And she said, however, when she has emotion available men, she doesn't feel attracted. And she had been giving this, at, I guess, well-intended advice. Uh, to just try and stay away from those men um, and also to write down a list of what she wants in a man so she could get clarity. And there was nothing wrong with doing that. These can be good exercises. But I said to her, the fact is, it's not a cognitive process when you feel attraction to a specific man over another. So, you know, you can't cognitively say, oh, I want to be attracted to this and not this. That's not going to necessarily help you. I said, there's probably some patterns here that we could look at from your childhood of why it is you find this attractive. And there might be things that we can heal that make you start feeling attracting towards men that are emotionally available. So again, I come back to what you said. I wanted to help her become aware of her own patterns. And instead of focusing on the men and what she wanted in in the man, etc., I wanted her to focus on what it is that caused her to repeat these behaviors and how can she maybe go back and heal some of these wounds. And we then started talking about some of these wounds of abandonment that caused this behavior um, and again so yeah I just think it's a really interesting point how you said you know we need to focus on self-awareness and also I guess there's a saying and you can maybe say this is wrong or right but that similarities to some extent attract um, which can also then again mean that we are more likely to attract someone that we desire when we have similar qualities in ourselves. I don't know what does the science actually say in regards yes, to that. That's such a good point. I mean, that's one of the biggest misconceptions in the area of relationship science that adage opposites attract and opposites do not attract. It's really those similarities, as you pointed out, that really help people build a strong and stable relationship. And I mean similarities at the deep level. So not necessarily what music you listen to or what sports team you root for, but who you are at your core. What are your values? What are your beliefs? What are your morals? And to your point about the advice that you gave to this woman, I think it's incredibly insightful and also really amazing advice, you know, kind of delving into 
what are these subconscious patterns that might be occurring, not only within her life, because, you know, research does support that our early attachment, there's a correlation between our early attachment and then the types of relationships that we seek out later in life, but also intergenerational patterns. So what kind of attachment patterns were modeled uh, for us between our parents, between our grandparents? And, you know, these different patterns and these views of relationships um, get incorporated at this subconscious level and can definitely influence us in terms of our romantic lives. Yeah, thank you for for bringing that up. Because again, it really brings up that 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 for have more flourishing relationship, we need to go back and look at our own past. Essentially, if we want to, if we feel dissatisfied, rather than we have this idea, I guess, in in I think especially in the culture we live in now, where everything seems so replaceable, they're just a swipe away, and we feel if there's problems, if we don't feel in love, if we feel there's challenge, people so quickly want to run away because they can just go swipe again, and we forget that, you know, if we just and I'm not talking about abusive relationship, those absolutely get to safety, take care of yourself, but I'm just talking day to day issues and relationships, how so quickly we run away, rather than realize that we are probably just going to bring the same issues to the next relationship if we feel really anxious and get really jealous yes of course we can we can look and talk to our partner about their behavior and that might be able to calm some of it but there's a high likelihood we would feel very similar in a new relationship unless we start looking at it what is it that's causing us to feel all this anxiety etc yes and like to your point about looking for other relationships i mean i think that there is kind of this belief that with such large dating pools or the perception is that there are that there is such a large dating pool when you go onto one of these swipe-based sites where you can see hundreds, if not thousands of different profiles and easy access to different people right at your fingertips. You know, it, it might seem very easy to just quickly abandon ship if someone doesn't meet one of the criteria. Now, of course, you know, I'm also not talking about abusive relationships, as you mentioned, or, you know, something at a deeper level. So if you have some sort of non-negotiable, if you know religion is very important in your life, or if you want to be with someone who prioritizes their health and they're and is a non-smoker, like if there are certain things like that, then okay, I can understand you leaving the relationship in search of another person. But it's almost like we're under the impression that we can create a list of attributes and search for that specific person on a dating site. And the minute we kind of find that the person doesn't live up to what we want them to be, quickly swipe away and find the next person without taking time to reflect and work on ourselves. Yeah, I love that. And you know, relationship is meant to be challenging right because the fact is we obviously have this romantic idea from hollywood we meet we're in love and it's all great and we dance around in the street but the truth is we are different people who come with different emotional wounds with different stories with different needs and when those two meet eventually some of those things will clash because of course they're not compatible and this idea that we're supposed to just know what our partner want if we really love them which is obviously not true because we don't have that um ability to read other people's mind even though it would be wonderful so the truth is it's very much about communication and you also mentioned about your book addressing this so I want to get a a little bit into that first we talked about attachment patterns so I guess one of my questions is how we can use the knowledge of different attachment styles to actually help relationships thrive Is, is that something maybe you could touch upon 
Yeah. So let me just, you know, for people who don't necessarily have a background in, you know, different attachment patterns. So this is kind of going all the way back. And this is a psychology professor in me. Um, John Bowlby is an amazing, he's a world-renowned psychologist, and he focused a great deal on attachment behaviors. And these are, these attachment behaviors are observed throughout the life cycle. And they're most obvious during early childhood in response to threat. So one of the earliest attachment researchers besides Bowlby was Mary Ainsworth. And um, she created what was known as a strange situation paradigm, where she focused on, you know, infants' behaviors when in the presence of a stranger and the absence and reunification with their mother. So she was basically looking at how did children respond to threat. And from her research, which is really, really interesting, she identified three main attachment types. So you basically have secure attachment, insecure resistant, and insecure avoidant. And um, you know, people who are securely attached, they basically view the world as safe. They view the world as predictable. This is kind of the gold standard, if you will, of relationship attachment types. Um, And research has shown, as I mentioned before, that childhood attachment styles are consistent with those found in adulthood. So those attachment bonds that we develop early in life, whether they're secure, anxious, or avoidant, uh, as a result of our interactions with our caregivers, will be similar to the styles that are exhibited in our romantic relationships. And it can affect everything from partner selection to the way in which we relate to our significant others and the behaviors that we display during the course of our relationship. So as a result of this, when we examine relationship-related behaviors, attachment styles are really, really important to consider. So just to kind of give you like a quick example, um, A person who has an avoidant attachment style might be someone who is more hesitant to get involved in a long-term commitment, thinking that, you know, no one's really going to want to settle down with them and why should they bother settling down with another person? Um, A person who's anxious, anxiously attached, they're going to feel in the relationship as if he or she is going to be rejected by his or her partner. And as a result of this, they might tend to try to maintain very close proximity to their partners due to this fear of abandonment. So this might be the type of person who's constantly calling, trying to check up on their partner, see where he or she is at. And it could be viewed by the other partner as overbearing in many cases, though that isn't the intent of those actions. So it's really important to understand what our attachment styles are, um, how they kind of shaped in childhood and how they're affecting us now. And this doesn't mean that if we've developed an avoidant or anxiously attached style that we're doomed to repeat this. You know, we're able to modify our attachment behaviors by, you know, working with a therapist or a marriage and family therapist, or even just being aware of what our potential triggers are and having open and honest communication with our partner about these triggers and about our attachment behaviors. Yeah, that's thank you for for really clarifying that because you're right. Most people probably don't know what we were talking about. And I also think it's important to mention that there's also fluidity in the way that we are not, and you mentioned this already, we're not a fixed 
thing. So it's important that when people listen to this, they don't categorize themselves and say, okay, I'm avoidant, so this I'm doomed. This is just how I am. That's not the case because therapy and also relationship itself, if people have a lot of self-awareness and good communication, can help us heal. So, you know, I've seen that people that are maybe slightly anxious, if they end up being with someone who's very secure and they're able to communicate their needs for safety and those are given, they can slowly over time start becoming more securely attached themselves, right? And I even noticed with myself, while normally I'm mainly securely attached, if I had been with a partner in the past that were highly avoidant, that could start slowly making me more anxiously attached. So yeah, I think it's just important to see there is fluidity to go in different ways, depending on you know what attachment style our partner has as well. Right. It's definitely not a fixed entity. And it's a matter of right, that self-awareness piece kind of creeps in again here is understanding, you know, what your attachment style is and what your needs are, what your triggers are. And, you know, going back to an example of a person who is anxiously attached, who's in a relationship with a person who's securely attached, something as simple as you know, when you go out with your friends and you don't call me for several hours, this kind of sets off alarm bells. And and I start to think like, have you met someone? What's going on? Are you cheating? You know, as simple as that by communicating, I need to hear from you because this is something that helps me feel safe and secure. That's important because if this conversation isn't had, the person who's anxiously attached might start to incorporate some fears or some doubts about their partner being under what might be an incorrect assumption that their partner is cheating. This in turn would you know, affect the anxiously attached person's behavior and it would create friction between the two people in the relationship and the underlying issues and fears would never get resolved. So being able to communicate it, which can be hard at times um, and sometimes might require the help of a therapist or a coach or, um, you know, that that in and of itself is extremely important. Yeah, and also... I think you're right because it can be very difficult for people to communicate this both because maybe they're not self-aware and maybe they are also afraid of being vulnerable and communicate those needs, which which I found often. I guess vulnerability is, again, another big challenge because we have this, and I was going to talk to you about this later, but this big fallacy of individuality, I guess, where we glorify and say, you know, we should be able to deal with everything ourselves. We shouldn't be dependent on someone else. And, you know, we should always be confident and we kind of glorify these attributes rather than acknowledge what I think we, we know now that the brain is a social organ and we do need each other. And actually there's something I found myself, something really beautiful in acknowledging that and not shaming each other or ourselves anymore about actually needing others because then we can express more, like you said, in the instance of, of where we might feel anxious that we have the need um, that the other can meet. And also instead, because what often happens, I think with the example you gave, somebody maybe say, I need you to check in with me. So, you know, I know that you're there with me and you're not cheating, etc. Normally couples I find get caught in the, argument over the actions taking place so they would say you're trying to control me no why don't you check in and they, they debate the actions taken 
rather than the underlying need, and that's why the conflict doesn't get resolved, right? If they instead could talk about what is the underlying need, it's okay, you have a need to feel safe because you worry about potential abandonment or that I will cheat, and they could easily say, okay, and this is how we can address that need by me doing a, a check-in. Then, to be honest, it's pretty easily solved, but it requires a conversa- an emotional conversation, right? Rather than only be stuck in debating the actions that were taken. Right. And to your point, I think that, you know, understanding that we do need to rely on other people at times and and things like asking for help or feeling felt or experiencing felt security from our relationships with others, there's nothing wrong with that. And too often, I think that people feel as if they need to be completely independent and self-reliant. And, you know, those are amazing attributes to have. And, um, you know, I think that those are very, very important, but we have this pervasive drive to be able to relate to others and form bonds to others. And the need for affiliation is extremely important. And, you know, this goes beyond just romantic relationships. This can just be with anyone, even completely unacquainted people. And the need for affiliation or to join on with another person is especially high during times of uncertainty. So one of the examples that I give when I, when I do a workshop is um you know i'm i'm from new york and we pretty much communicate we we pretty much travel and and rely on you know the subway system so the example that i give is usually and you know people that take any form of public transportation can probably relate to this is that you know, when people are on public transportation, they're often, you know, kind of keeping to themselves, maybe looking at a smart device, listening to music, playing a game on their phones, reading a book, but really not interacting with the outside world. And then I say, imagine for a moment that, um, you know, the train or the bus or, or whatever you're on stops and the lights go off. So you're going to start to feel that immediate worry, that immediate fear. But then after that, you'll start to notice that people begin to come out of this like self, this this shell or the focus on, of the, on themselves and start to look around and interact with other people in any way they can. You know, do you know what stop we're at? What stop is next? Did you hear the announcement? What's going on? And all of a sudden, when people start to feel this fear or this uncertainty, that's when they want to bond together and create this connection. So no matter what's going to happen, they have other people that they'll be able to rely on. That makes a lot of sense. I guess that's part of our drive for survival, right? That, that brings us together. And it's interesting The um, there's a journalist, is it Sebastian? I can't remember, Junker, I think he's called, who did a TED talk as well about exactly this. That, And he's written a book, I think it's called Tribal, which is very much about how we come together and how actually some of our, our most emotional, strong moments um, that have the most significant and where we have higher well-being is actually in highly stressful circumstances. I think he said in his book that during the Second World War, they found that cases of depression and mental illness actually went down in London when London was bombed by the Germans because people came together in a social way that they normally haven't before. So even though, of course, there was suffering, um, it also seemed to actually, to some extent, improve mental health, um, which was a really interesting observation. Right, right. I mean, I've definitely seen that. And unfortunately, it does often take tragedy to get people to bond together. I mean, looking at New Yorkers coming together in the wake of 9-11 or, you know, 
people in Boston after the Boston marathon bombing, they had like hashtag Boston strong. So people really realize in those moments that it's important to come together as one and work as a team. And I mean, you know, like I mentioned, it's unfortunate that it often takes tragedy to remind people of this, but if there is a way to kind of shift people's thoughts so they would be able to proactively use these lessons and not do it in such a reactionary way. Yeah, I think, yeah, that that would be wonderful. I want to get a bit back to what we were talking about before, because we started talking a bit about communication and, and you know, how couples could use that self-awareness. Is that something you could talk a bit more about? So how can couples, and let's say they have started becoming more self-aware and reflect on their own patterns, their own past, and how that impact their relationship, how can they now use that to improve the communication in their relationship? So communication is so, so important in relationships. And, you know, I've had people come up to me during some of my workshops and they'll say, well, my partner and I don't fight. Uh, Is that a problem or does does that make us better than every other couple? And, um, you know, this kind of goes back to the point you made before that we all come to a relationship with our own unique backgrounds and experiences. And I often say that, you know, if you're not really fighting or arguing, you're probably not letting your guard down and being vulnerable. And, you know, because at some point you're going to experience some conflict. Um, And I don't mean this has to be like an all out, like aggressive fight, but just a disagreement. Disagreements are important because, you know, disagreements can sometimes bring clarity to the relationship by helping us understand our partner. And um, a lot of, you know, what the research that I focus on in the area of communication is actually that of John Gottman, who is amazing. And he is out of the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, he talks about what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse within relationships. And he's done a lot of research in this area. And I think that just even being aware of what these four horsemen are can help us improve our relationships, not just our romantic relationships, but our, you know, friendships and even, um, you know, our relationships with our coworkers. And just to kind of give you a sense of, of what they are, we have criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. So I'll go through each of them briefly and and give the listeners an idea of an antidote or what we can employ to kind of stop this horseman from impacting our relationship in a negative way. And you know, as people are listening, if if they start to realize that they tend to employ these in arguments, it's okay. We all do. A lot of us employ these. It's about realizing it and making the appropriate changes in the future. So, um, for example, criticism is when you attack your partner's character. So, for example, if you were to say, you know, you always leave the dishes in the sink because you're such a slob, what happens is, is your partner is going to remember that you called him or her a slob long after the argument or the conflict is over. So you have communicated you think your partner is a slob rather than what you were really upset about, which was your partner leaving a mess in the sink. So the way to kind of combat criticism and improve your overall communication would be to use eye language. And eye language is so, so important 
And what you're doing in that case is you're focusing on the problematic behavior rather than the person. So for example, you might say instead, you know, when you leave the dishes in the sink, I get upset because I'm already running late in the morning and now I have to spend extra time cleaning things, which might make me late for work. So sure, it takes longer. It's not as easy to just quickly drop that in during the course of you know communication or a conflict. But what's happening there is you're letting your partner know what behavior is troubling to you and why it's troubling to you. You may not see eye to eye about cleaning the dishes in the sink or putting dishes away, but at least you're letting your partner know why you're upset and what you're going on and you're communicating the full message. Uh, The second one is defensiveness. And defensiveness is basically when a person, rather than taking responsibility for their action, just kind of throws it back on the other person. So to go back to that dish example I just gave, um, the partner might say, well, what did you expect me to do? You took forever getting ready in the bathroom this morning. I had no other choice but to leave the dishes in the sink. You know, I was already running too late. So what's happening there is the partner isn't owning what they did in that particular situation and is just kind of throwing the problem back and blaming the other individual. So the antidote in that particular case is to take responsibility. When you do something wrong, and inevitably you will because we're human and you know things pop up from time to time, but when you do something wrong, own it. Because if you own what you do wrong, hopefully your partner will follow suit and then you'll create this culture of appreciation and respect within the relationship. The third uh, main horseman is contempt. And contempt is saying something hurtful while coming from a place of superiority. It's really, really similar to criticism. The slight difference is that you want to think of contempt as basically criticism with a little bit of sarcasm or um, contemptuousness. And it's kind of like biting, it's caustic. So you might say something like, of course you didn't get that promotion, you can't even keep it together at home. And the goal of saying something like that is pretty much just to like hurt your partner and quote, like win the argument or whatever's going on. But what's happening is, is you're really attacking your partner's character. And just like with criticism, long after this discussion or this conflict is over, the partner is going to remember those hurtful words. So just as with criticism, the antidote to this is using eye language. You know, when something bothers you, focus on the specific behavior or whatever it is that's bothering you and how it makes you feel so you're able to effectively communicate your thought process and your emotions to your partner. And finally, the last one, which I think is one of the most interesting, is stonewalling. And, um, you know, most people, I'm sure, have heard of the whole fight or flight response. So when uh, danger is lurking. You either get ready to fight or flee the situation, but it's not just fight or flight. It's actually fight, flight, or flood. And that flooding component is when our arousal level goes up, our physiological arousal. So, um, you know, we're getting involved in maybe a heated argument or, um, a really a situation in which we're on high alert. So, um, we just completely get flooded 
where we can't focus, we can't think clearly, and what this might look like in the course of some sort of conflict or an argument you're having with your partner is that you completely shut down and you're not processing any of the information that your partner's saying at the moment. And what happens in these cases is that your partner will often misinterpret this as he or she is not paying attention to me or he's not an active person in this conversation. So they get angrier and as a result, they get louder and they get more aggressive and the argument starts to escalate. But the person who is stonewalled still just really isn't present. So the important antidote to this is when you're not capable of processing anymore, let your partner know and take a 20-minute break. Um, I know this might be hard for a lot of people because oftentimes when you're in a heated argument or debate, you just want to get your point across and be done with it. But don't force a conversation when both people aren't ready to have that conversation because it's not going to be productive. So doing something just like taking a 20-minute break, that's enough to get your physiological arousal level down and you'll be able to come back with renewed energy, renewed focus, and have a very clear conversation. So it's not what we fight about that's necessarily the problem. It's how we fight. It's how we communicate with one another. So just by understanding those four horsemen and your tendency to employ them in arguments or in communication with others can really help you, you know, scale back on them and improve your communication. That was the best breakdown I had of the four horsemen. I think that was so straight to the point and so clear. I really enjoyed listening to that, even though I already am familiar with them. So thank you for thank you for sharing that. And you know, there's one tiny thing I want to add because you mentioned taking the twenty minute break, which absolutely makes sense. The only thing I would add on top of that that I found when I started trying to employ this from Mr. Gottman's work was the fact that if you can employ or do some kind of movement in that 20-minute break, that would serve often wonders. Because again, when we have an adrenaline response, then our biology, we are meant to move. We are meant to either run away. We are meant to fight. Um, that's what adrenaline is meant to do. That's why we have it. And of course, you know, there is no one that we can fight because you're not supposed to hurt your partner. And also running away permanently is not a great solution. But actually going for a run is a great solution. Dancing. I sometimes dance in the living room and that helps me release some of that adrenaline to come down to a place where I'm able to employ those strategies because I know for some people when they get flooded, you know, their prefrontal cortex or the part of the brain that can inhibit that response simply gets overloaded and we lose control. And that's when we go into these nasty negative patterns that you just described so well that are so destructive. And I just found myself that adding an element of movement when we have these breaks really allow us to to calm down. What I normally do is a very simple process where when I can feel in my body I'm triggered and I can sense it because I know where I get tense off in my stomach, I will say I need a break and then I will do some kind of movement. It could be go for a run, it can be dancing in a living room, it can be go boxing on my boxing bag that allow me to release and once that initial edge is off, I sit down and just do my meditation a deep breathing exercise and i know before i've done that i should not talk to my partner because anything coming out of my mouth will not be constructive <laughs> yes yes i think that's such a good point and you also make a wonderful point about like you know with movement 
it, it might take some trial and error for people to kind of figure out well what works best for them. So for some people, it might be just going straight to yoga meditation. For other people, myself included, I would need something more like cardio based to kind of get rid of that that extra built up energy, like you mentioned, going for a run or dancing or something. But you know, using that trial and error to figure out what works best for you and helps to kind of calm and center you so you can go back into that discussion more level-headed and more cognizant of what it is that you're saying and communicating is so important yeah thank you for that and i think what because it brings me greatly on actually to the next point so if people often are stuck in conflict cycles where they obviously are living through some of these patterns you just described that are really destructive and they find it really hard to break out of that because I remember when I was with my ex-wife, I could recognize these patterns, but we find it so hard to break them. We just kept getting stuck. And I guess the what I call the emotional bank account have to some extent been drained over a long period of time. So that goodwill was gone. Is there some kind of... So, so basically what I'm saying is at that point, taking a 20-minute break wasn't enough because so much resentment had built up. Is there a way for couples to break that cycle if they have been stuck in it for quite a while? Well, I think you make an important point when it comes to cycles. I think the first step is being able to identify it. And in the case that you just mentioned, while you were able to identify it, you weren't necessarily able to get out of it. Um, but for many people, they don't even identify the cycle. And we, we do tend to see that you know people will repeat patterns and it's not necessarily for the good of the relationship, but it might be bringing you know short-term relief for individuals. So you know kind of to go back to the four horsemen, you know, a person that just kind of throws out a statement like, well, you can't even get it together at home, and that ends the argument, they're being positively re reinforced by thinking, you know, I got my point across, the argument's over, I won. But instead, what's really happening is, you know, resentment is building up between them and their partner because they're saying something hurtful and communicating this hurtful message to their partner. So, you know, one person might be under the impression that this cycle is actually beneficial. So being able to call out the cycle or make both partners aware of the problem, which may be able to be done by the partners themselves, might sometimes require outside help in the form of a therapist or a coach. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of marriage counseling, both as a strategy to kind of get through difficult times in a relationship and as, you know, a proactive measure to improve and enhance the relationship, you know, that might be helpful. And beyond just kind of calling out the conflict cycle, it takes a, a constant negotiation between both partners to figure out well, what communication, what method or mode of communication is most effective for both of them and that they can both live with. So, you know, can you get the couples to see eye to eye on the importance of taking a break, which for many, it, taking a break in terms of like a 20 minute break during the argument? Because for many people, this is so antithetical to what they usually do in an argument where they're angry and they want to get their point across immediately. So getting both people to kind of air to one another 
what they need in terms of communication to help them feel safe, to help them feel secure, and to kind of come to some sort of an, an agreement of what they can realistically employ next time they get into a heated argument. I think that's a huge, huge step in the right direction. Yeah, f- thank you for that. And yeah, I think hopefully this has given our listeners a bit of a clarification, both of the patterns and how to potentially try and, and break those patterns, which is really, really useful. I think what I want to focus on a bit too, because I know your book also deals a bit with, I guess, before people are in a committed relationship, like you said about the first date, etc. And I obviously saw this video on your website, and, and this is why I want to bring this up, which is kind of this, I guess, fallacy of love at first sight and how, you know, we often use this infatuation of of chemicals in our brain when we are so you know getting so attached to somebody in the beginning and we don't really see all the challenging sides etc that we often use that as a as a way to decide a long-term partner and maybe that's not the wisest thing so i don't know if you can talk a bit about about that and maybe ways that we could make better choices of of long-term partners and purely on how we feel in that first initial moment or months etc Yeah. So, um, love at first sight. I mean, it's part of so many movies and it kind of goes with this like whole narrative of, you know, a romantic, we see each other across the room, we fall in love and we live happily ever after. And it's a perfect relationship, which, you know, um, makes for an interesting movie, but that's often really not how relationships are in the real world. But when it comes to love at first sight, it's not necessarily that we're experiencing love. Um, And, you know, even love itself has many different definitions and there really is no clear consensus on what love actually consists of. But what it is, is it's more of, as you mentioned, this infatuation at first sight. And, you know, we do form first impressions very, very quickly and we can often gauge how we feel about another person in milliseconds. And a quick glance often supplies us with lots of information, but it's important to remember this information isn't necessarily accurate. So, you know, research has shown that just by looking at a picture of a person, you know, in a split second, we often will make decisions about whether or not a person is trustworthy, if they're intelligent, if they're reliable. And again, this isn't necessarily accurate. And what this has to do is with something known as a halo effect. And the halo effect is this powerful phenomenon in which we're able to form an impression of a person as a result of inferring attributes from them. So um, there's also this other idea that kind of extends from the halo effect in social psychology called the what is beautiful is good phenomenon. So People who are beautiful or who who are judged to be beautiful are often seen as good. And other research has shown that they're often seen as more intelligent, more trustworthy, better employees. And we're inferring all of this information just based upon a physical image. So people might actually feel as if they're really in love with this person, like their eyes meet across you know, from across the room, they think the person's attractive. And all of a sudden they're like, they're amazing. They're kind, they're wonderful. But, you know, that's not based upon actually knowing them as an individual. So 
it's creating what might be, you know, an instant connection or a spark, but you know, we're back to your question. It's really imperative to take the time to get to know the person and to build a strong foundation so that you're able to create a long lasting and loving relationship built on something more than just an initial impression, which again, might not be accurate. Thank you for clarifying that because I think while we can enjoy that sensation, it's also important not to trust it fully to make you know judgment calls on who is a long-term suitable partner. So I think that's important to to kind of clarify. And when you you know you mentioned that we don't have a clear definition of love, which is true. It's something we throw around so much. And I just thought about what is what is my definition of love? And again, I'm going to throw it out there. This is in no way scientific. Um, I don't think, like you said, there is a scientific definition that everyone agrees on. But I think for me, love is being fully seen and accepted or being able to give that to another person to fully see them and accept them. Um, And I feel that's something I definitely have experienced with my children where I'm able to fully see them everything that they are, all their annoying little habits without (laughs) having to judge them and just accept that that's part of them and that I truly want the best for them. Um, But again, that's just my own personal interpretation of how I see love. Beautiful, beautiful definition. Um, And it really, your definition where you related it back to your children, it encompasses, you know, different types of love because you have things like, you know, being love when you're being cared for another person, Um, love when you're caring for another person, you know, love for friends, love for parents, love for someone like your children, you know, romantic love. And I think that that's a really great you know, definition that you, you supply there. Yeah, because I really feel that love is all a spe- across the spectrum, right? Then, yes, of course, there's a romantic and sexual element in adult relationships, absolutely. But I think we often confuse that sexuality with love, while often sex can obviously enhance our attachment to each other for sure and the bond. I don't think necessarily that alone is, is love. And I think often we misunderstand that. And yeah, I think you're right because the way I see love, it does run around the spectrum. I can love my parents in that way, my children, my partner, um, as long as I'm able to be able to see them without judgment and accept them for who they are. Right, right. And you make an interesting point, you know, about kind of conflating love and and sexual intimacy. And a lot of times I've seen people conflate intimacy with sex. And sex is part of intimacy, but it's not all that intimacy is. You know, intimacy is you know, letting it it has to do with vulnerability. It's letting your innermost wants, fears, desires be known by another person. And intimacy is a part of all loving relationships. So, you know, it's, it's not the same thing as sex, but often, you know, people use these terms and they don't really parse out what the differences might be. Yeah. And I think the key here is what you just said, vulnerability, because again, we can have sex without being vulnerable. And that can actually be quite sometimes disconnecting sex, um, where vulnerability is what really brings that intimacy together, that that brings the glue of connection, which makes it so beautiful. And I think it's often, especially when we have a culture where, and I know this is not a podcast on sexuality, but we are so focused on performance, you know, and, and getting to a goal of, which is often orgasm that we learned, and having this goal alone take us away from the process of intimacy 
and showing up through vulnerability and being present. Um, but I guess that's a whole nother podcast. So, so to get back to what we were talking about before, but equally uh, important, equally important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'll do another podcast on that. So, I think <laughs> for for choosing long term partners, then is there a way or some questions that people can have or ask or have a debate with their partner to try and make sure that they make better choices rather than just, you know, going off this initial sensation that they experience? Yeah, so this kind of goes back to what you mentioned before about the, um, you know, point that people who are similar, like similarity is an important component in relationships. So it's not that opposites attract. So you want to find a long-term partner who has the same morals, values and beliefs as you and you just view the world in a similar manner and you know like we were mentioning before this does require a person to have a level of self-awareness because you, know, you really need to understand well what are my beliefs and how do I view the world so you know some questions that that can help you with this is simply by asking you know who am I You know, how do I view myself what type of person am I you know what is important to me So what do I value? What do I personally believe in? And this can be in terms of, you know, social rights, spirituality, religion. Um, you know, what are your goals for the future? So you want to ask yourself, you know, what are my personal and, you know, career goals? Where do I see myself in five years, in 10 years? You know, and along with that, you'll often touch on things, you know, about career, or you know, your geographic location and where it's important, you know, is it important for you to stay close and live by your family? Or do you want to branch out and, you know, move somewhere new? And only once you understand, you know, yourself and what's important to you, can you then begin to explore, well, what attributes are important to you and a mate? So what type of person am I attracted to? And I don't necessarily mean physically. I mean, you know, what traits in another person? Is it something like humor or kindness? And then you could start to think about, well, what are my non-negotiables? And, um, you know, this isn't something to be taken lightly. You don't want to try to craft a list like we mentioned before and you know, try to check off boxes because that can really whittle down your pool of eligible partners, but you want to think about, well, what is it that's truly important to you? And this would be a deal breaker in the relationship. So, you know, if you're someone who's extremely religious and envisions yourself as having children that you then instill religion in and go to church every single Sunday, then maybe, you know, your non-negotiable is somewhere, something around religion. So it's really thinking about like how you choose to live your life both now and in the future and what's going to be most compatible in terms of finding a mate. Yeah, and I'm happy you you mentioned this and I think it's really good advice. And I think again it comes back to the integration that to select a good partner we again need to integrate both the left and the right brain. So we need to obviously listen to our sensation and our emotions, but we also need to listen to the logic and like you said look at where are the compatibilities and values and and the non-negotiables which again is more uh, of using the logical brain and i guess it's it's integrating both of them to be able to see where is somebody who could be a good long-term partner for me so i think one thing i want to ask you about as well so we talked a lot about connection conflict cycles um and i want to talk a little bit about passion as well passion and desire because again we all know 
And I guess everybody out there can relate to this, that we meet someone, maybe we fall in love or we are highly excited. We think about them all the time. Sex and passion is great. It seems so natural. And then after a little while, six months, a year, maybe two years, if people are lucky, that just seemed to have gone. And we just seem to be with this person who is around and seems very familiar and safe, but we don't really feel that much passion for them. What can people kind of do to both avoid going down this this path and also if they're in it to to get out of it and try and reignite and also have some passion in their relationship? Well, I think that's important to understand that there is going to be a natural progression within a relationship. And, um, you know, a lot of people, when that passion starts to die down, like there is a very clear honeymoon phase in the beginning of a relationship and, and they get worried when this dies down thinking, you know, okay, my relationship is doomed, but to realize that there is a natural ebb and flow. And, um, I think, you know, one thing that I often share with people is that you can reignite the passion and I don't mean in terms of just like sex, but you can reignite the passion and interest in one another by looking for ways to help one another other grow. And um, I, I rely on the self-expansion model in this particular case. And in the self-expansion model of relationships, we basically seek from another person ways in which we can broaden our perspective and our interests within that relationship or by virtue of being in a relationship with that other person. And we can benefit as a result of learning from our partner and we grow as a result of sharing in his or her ideas, interests, and resources. So, um, you know, you can kind of reignite this by trying something new in the relationship. Something as simple as doing something that you've never done before or sharing a part of yourself that you haven't with your partner before. Things as simple as just, you know, picking up a new hobby together or sharing your hobby with your partner, you know, taking a dance class, taking a cooking class, traveling together. So it's new ways to build connections and also, you know, help each person grow as individuals, but more importantly, grow together within that relationship. Yeah, and I guess that also allows us to see new sides in each other, right? When we talk about novelty, because you're right, it's not just about sex. It's also about when we when we feel we know everything about that person, then it starts feeling more mundane. And you're right, by constantly improving ourselves, doing new things together, we get to see our partner in a new perspective. We get to see them change. We get to see them grow. And that in itself adds a level of freshness, I guess, to any relationship. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. You know, I could probably go on and talk to you for a long time, but also <laughs> I realize that this is getting a long podcast. And, you know... Yeah, I was just wondering if there's anything, any last thoughts about the book that you want to mention. And like I said, I will also, yeah, I'll, I'll give people, the listeners information about the book, which is definitely worth to go and get and, and have a read. Um, but is there any last comments you want to say about the book that might be interesting for people? I guess, uh, you know, what I want to share is that there is so much valuable information coming out of the subfield of relationship science. And there are lots of great ways. Like, for example, I maintain a blog on psychology today 
that, you know, tries to distill these studies in, in relationship science in ways that people can understand how they apply to their everyday lives and really get important messages across. And I think that there's a lot of value in looking towards the research to help us understand both our relationships and ourselves. And with that, that self-awareness piece is you know, like I said before, in order to have a long-lasting, loving, and successful relationship, really focus by turning inward first and getting a good understanding of what's important to you and what do you want out of a relationship before even looking for a partner. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful last note to leave uh, our listeners on. So thank you so much, Marissa, for coming on this podcast today. And I really hope that we can get you on again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also, leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, then head over to sensor.com and join the free one-hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down, how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle, why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it, the simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast. Mm -hmm.